Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Big E here, and today we're talking about electronic evidence as part of our Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers podcast. Uh, this is a podcast for those of you, for you out there in Virginia, police, sheriffs, law enforcement officers who want to do it right, who strive every day to be better and find new ways to strengthen and serve your communities. Uh, it is increasingly difficult, I think, to remain focused on you know, what is the law and what does it tell us we can do and what we can't do? How do we do it right? And society sometimes doesn't want to give you the resources to even learn how to do that right. Uh, but I hope that this podcast provides that ability to do that. And one of the things that we're doing right now is talking about electronic evidence. We've talked about use of force issues. We've talked about new laws and new cases and so on. But one of the listeners wrote in and gave us a you know great review and then also said some nice things and suggested, hey, if you really want to help out, how about talking about electronic evidence? And that's what we're talking about now. We've done a couple of episodes now. We've talked about, um, you know, sort of basic concepts in electronic evidence, and then we've talked about getting basic subscriber data. And we talked about some basic concepts like, you know, data in rest versus data in motion and privacy versus third-party doctrine and content versus non-content. And we've talked about, you know, how, what are the basic rules about how do you get stuff. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes because today we're going to build on that. And today we're going to expand on it. And one of the things I want to start out by talking about today is pen registers and trap and trace. Because they're a funny little piece of uh, information that law enforcement may need to get in the course of investigation. And how to get it is uh, interesting and a little unusual. And so I want to talk about what the rules are and so on. <clears throat> so you might remember, right, that we had sort of this idea that as you increase the when you go from, you know, the past to the present to the future, the amount of legal process that you need increases, the intensity of legal process that you need increases. And as you go from basic subscriber information, like who's the subscriber, what's their name, what's their address and stuff, just basic information to something like location data to uh, actual content, again, the intensity of legal process required increases from a simple court order uh, based on relevance to a legitimate law enforcement inquiry to something like a search warrant where you have to have probable cause supported by an oath or affirmation. And we've talked about getting basic subscriber orders. Pen register trap and trace is a funny little thing because it's a piece of legal process used to get information that doesn't currently exist but might in the future. And the way it comes from, it's actually two words, pen register and trap and trace. So um, they both refer to, to, to tools that really don't exist anymore. And so, like so much else of our electronic evidence law, it comes from ancient, in this, well, not ancient, but, you know, basically ancient technology and telecom terms. For those of you who've been around for a long time, you might remember that telephone poles used to be used for something other than cable TV and internet lines. It actually used to be used for telephone wires. And in the old days, the telephone was attached to the wall, uh, and it was wired, and if you made a phone call, the phone call went through those wires, and it went to a switching station somewhere in your neighborhood, and then it went to another bigger switching station, and then it got sent somewhere else, right? And you had these regional Bell operating companies like Bell Atlantic and so on, um, and they would route the calls within their network, but sometimes the call would have to get routed outside the network to another company, or it might go long distance, and it would go then handled by a long distance provider. Uh, AT&T, MCI, Sprint used to be a long distance provider, right? And this little history lesson matters because what you, if you were a law enforcement officer and you wanted to find out who is calling somebody at a particular number, and 
who is that what that what calls or who is that number calling right now right who what calls are going out uh, let's say again you had somebody who's selling drugs from their house you wanted to find out who are they selling to and who's calling to buy from them you would literally climb up the telephone pole and put a little box on the telephone pole and it was a little box that was a dial number recorder dnr and it would record the phone numbers that were dialing in and the file numbers that were phone numbers that were uh, being dialed out and that was the pen register and that was the trap and trace eventually that as the technology became electronic and stopped being mechanical the phone company would do this work for you. So you would no longer climb the telephone pole and put the box on and then go get the data from the telephone pole later, go up and take it down and, and find out what the data was. The telephone company would install software on their system that would uh, have them collect this information and then give it to you. The numbers, so people who are calling 555-1212 and then what numbers are being dialed from 555-1212 and they would provide that information to you on a certain regular basis as a law enforcement officer. So we start with the idea that, you know, the most basic, the Fourth Amendment, the one form of pro legal process that's mentioned in the Fourth Amendment is a search warrant. So why wouldn't you just get a search warrant for that information? Well, the simple answer for that is it doesn't exist. In other words, if you'd got a search warrant and you went to the phone company and you said, tell me what numbers are being dialed for the next month from this phone number, the company would say, well, that's not, we don't hold that information. We don't have that information. We can't turn that over to you. Uh, so that's not a search warrant. You're not searching for something that exists. If you said what numbers are dialing this number, again, that's not information that currently exists. It will in the future exist, but it doesn't exist right now. And even more problematic, I mean, we do have things called anticipatory search warrants, right? So you could, you know, argue, well, it's like an anticipatory search warrant, which is the same kind of search warrant that we use when we think that a package of drugs is going to be delivered to a house. Uh, the drugs don't aren't currently at the house, but we have information that drugs are going to be delivered to the house, maybe because FedEx has notified us that um, a package, you know, split open and they found cocaine in it. And so they're going to, you know, go ahead and deliver the package, but they want to let us know, hey, this has got cocaine in it and it's going to be delivered at 3 p.m. tomorrow. But the other problem is with getting this kind of information is, as I pointed out in the old days especially, it didn't exist unless you made the information. And what I mean by that is the phone company... And, you know, you think about the old, if in the old days, if you got a phone bill, and again, this is for the younger people, you're not going to remember this, but if you got a phone bill, your long distance phone bill would list the phone number, phone numbers that you dialed and the phone numbers uh, that you called and time of the call. It didn't tell you who called you. Your local phone bill definitely didn't tell you who you called, and it definitely didn't tell you who called you. Um, the only way you get that is be like if you had a hotel bill and a hotel charged you for phone calls. I don't know if you know this, back in the old days, hotels used to charge you like per phone call and it was like $2 or $3 a call. It was crazy. But enough history. The point is the information that you're seeking doesn't exist unless the provider makes it. This is especially important because nowadays the idea of pen registered trap and trace doesn't just apply to phone companies and cell phone companies. It also applies to companies like Facebook and Google and Apple and Twitter and so on. So, for example, if I want to know who somebody is contacting on Facebook Messenger, what is the ID number, the Facebook Messenger IDs of all of the people for the next 30 days that this individual is contacting, Facebook doesn't. Facebook collects that information, but they don't collect it in a format where they can give me a list. And they don't, they don't keep a list that says, um, you know, here are the, the Facebook ID, you know, um, you know, Big E at Messenger. I don't actually know how, 
I can't remember how Facebook Messenger writes their ideas. But anyway, Big E, Big E sending messages for the next 30 days to these people. Facebook doesn't collect the information in that way. So we're asking Facebook to collect information in that way. We're asking them to collect something special for us and turn it over to us. They don't necessarily keep a list of who everybody that contacts me, Big E, uh, they will instead put this, you know, they'll have to put that together for us if we deliver this court order. So because this information doesn't exist, and it doesn't exist unless we make Facebook or we make AT&T or we make Verizon or we make Sprint, make such information, in order to lawfully obtain that kind of information, there has to be legislation in place to force providers, to require providers to create, produce, and turn over that information to law enforcement. And that's where we get both federal and state law about uh, pen register trap and trace. And we have both federal law and state law about this. They were both of the statutes that we use right now were both passed um, right about the same time uh, and right about the same, you know, with the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And they're almost identical. So the federal government passed their statute and then one year later, and this is the mid-80s, one year later that Virginia passed their statute and Virginia's statute is almost word for word identical. In fact, it is really word for word identical to the federal statute. So they basically just followed the federal government's lead. Keep in mind, of course, if the federal government hadn't passed this statute, nowadays we really wouldn't have any authority to order Facebook or Twitter or whoever to do these things, um, you know, because, again, Facebook is located in Calif Menlo Park, California. Um, Google is located in, I think, Palo Alto, California. I'm forgetting right now. You know, all these companies are located, um, Apple, Cupertino, right, super far away. We need enabling legislation to exist, to, to do this. And, and, and the federal Pendrister Trap and Trace gives us that ability. And the Virginia version of that is 19.270.2. So the Virginia code section about obtaining court orders and search warrants and so on for existing data is 19.270.3. But the 19.270.2 code section is about pen register, trap, and trace. And uh, this is the section that I really want to hone in and talk about right now. <clears throat> so this is a code section that gives you the authority to get the information about who somebody is contacting and who is contacting them. And it requires you, just like with a search warrant or a court order, to, to request a court order by affidavit, by some kind of uh, sworn um, uh, statement, you know, affidavit, um, to a circuit court judge. You cannot get one of these from a magistrate. And we're going to talk about why this is that makes things very complicated in a second. You can't get these from a magistrate. Uh, you have to go to a circuit court judge. And then the court issues an order authorizing the installation and use of this device. The code section still talks about it like it's a device because it was written in a time when you did climb up. You'll see this in the code section. It says device because we used to climb up telephone poles and stick this box on there. It's not a device anymore. It's software. But... Um, in the old days, and because the code section was written this way in the old days, it could only be filed in the jurisdiction where the person uh, lives, works, may or maintains an address or P.O. box. And again, that's because we were envisioning this physical wire that went to somebody's house. Um, a few years ago, we changed the legislation to allow it to be obtained where the ongoing criminal investigation is being conducted, where there's probable cause to believe an offense was being committed, was committed, is being committed, or will be committed. And by the way, that was added after the murder of a law enforcement officer in Central Virginia. It was a 
really terrible murder by a violent criminal street gang, and the gang members didn't live, work, or maintain an address or P.O. box anywhere. They didn't have jobs. They didn't really live anywhere. They just sort of would go around and stay with different people and rob people and shoot people and eventually robbed and shot this officer. Uh, and at the time, one of the issues that came up was getting a pen register and trap or trace for them. They figured out who these guys were, and they wanted to figure out where are they staying now, what's their location, who are they communicating with, um, you know, where are these guys so we can find them and stop them from shooting and robbing people and killing people. And because they didn't live, reside, didn't work, maintain an address or box anywhere, there was no lawful place in Virginia where we could get this order, and that was very problematic. So the next year... Um, group of us went to the General Assembly and got that fixed. So that's helpful. Um, the code section limits you to getting one of these orders for 60 days. So the most amount of time that you can ask for in a single order is 60 days. You can go back and again reapply, but your reapplication has to be again for another 60 days. And again, you have to substantiate why you'd still be able and still lawfully be able to obtain this information. So um, that's an important limitation to keep in mind. But another limitation to keep in mind, and this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, is you are asking the providers to do work for you. This isn't just give me records you already have. This is collect information in such a way that is specific to this individual and provides me these specific records that I specifically want that you wouldn't normally keep track of. That's a lot of work. And because it's a lot of work and you're making people work for you, you should expect them to send you a bill. And it's reasonable to expect for them to expect you to pay that bill because you're putting them to work for you for a period of up to 60 days. And so these phone companies, AT&T, Verizon, and so on, will send you a bill for a pen registered trap and trace. Um, and electronic service companies, too, as well, can send you a bill. There's no real regulation on how much they can charge you. There is, uh, at the federal level, this group called CALEA, and they sort of work on, in the cell phone industry, in the communications industry, uh, standards for, you know, what a reasonable fee would be and so on. At the state level, we don't have a group like that. Um, so you should make sure you find out what the charge is going to be, what the cost is going to be before you go get one of these warrants, because if you get one of these court orders for trap and trace, and then, you know, you're all excited about it for this, you know, you say it's your first big case, you're going to do this and you do this and you, and all of a sudden, you know, some $2,000 bill comes in and that's not unexpected. $2,000 would be a, a, a not unexpected bill. Uh, your, you know, your sergeant, your lieutenant, your captain is going to haul you into his office, um, as he often does and tell you how the mayor is going to have his ass and your, you know, crazy antics are going to, you know, are, are no, have no place in this department and so on. The kind of thing that you probably always have conversation you always have with your captain. So in a minute, then, we're going to talk about the complication with this, which is uh, you're not just usually looking for the content of the, I mean, excuse me, the, the, um, the identity of people, but you're also probably using this for location data, and that adds some complication to you. Uh, before I talk about that, though, I do uh, want to take a minute and talk to you guys again about uh, Copline. Uh, this job hasn't gotten any easier in the last few years, and the stress, the trauma, the um, the burden that this job has, and the uh, the stressors that that have been added in recent years to this job are showing in the numbers of officers who take their own life each year. And there's probably a lot of reasons why this is going on. Um, but you know, 
cop line is there for you. Your buddies are there for you. You should know that it is very easy in this job to think that nothing that you do matters, that the world would be a better place if you just weren't around, um, that you know, there's no hope for the future. It's very easy to fall into that and to fall into negative thinking. I think you know, sitting around in roll call and complaining and so on can help you know, create these negative environments, but we need to watch out for people who aren't just unhappy, maybe rightfully so, about the way the world is, um, but really suffering in, in a way that's unusual and that's causing people to, to decide that there's no point in going on. Um, first of all, what you do does matter. And you can't do this job expecting to make everybody happy. You can't do this job expecting that people aren't going to call you names. And at a certain point, you're going to have to accept that people are going to call you horrible things for doing what's right. Um, you have to be able to go to bed at night or 8 o'clock in the morning or whenever you go to bed, 10 o'clock, you know, 10.30 in the morning when you get off your shift, um, and close your eyes and say, what I did today was right, and I'm, I'm glad that I, I got out of bed this morning. I'm glad that I did what I did, and I came home safe. I protected my community and my family, and I, I protected uh, justice. I, I, enhanced, I did something to keep uh, justice in my community. Um, and it's hard to say that sometimes. So, you know, if there is no one else that you can talk to, if you need someone to talk to, if you feel like there's nowhere else to turn, uh, Copline is there. It's strictly confidential. It's manned entirely by retirement law enforcement officers. The number is 1-800-COPLINE. That's 1-800-267-5463. Again, that's 1-800-267-5463. Or go to copline.org. Uh, what you do does matter. Uh, it matters to the people every day who don't spend all their time on the internet making comments, but you know, go to work, support their families, and need you, need you to keep doing what you're doing. So, as I mentioned, a pen register trap and trace gets you basic, we're still at basic information, right? Who is making these calls? What is their phone number? What's their IP address? What's the IP address of the person who's reaching out and contacting this individual? Um, what are the IP addresses of, this per, of the people whom this individual is reaching out and contacting? That's really basic, low-level information. But when we're doing a pen register trap and trace, especially with phones, we don't just usually want to have that information. We also want to get the location data. We want to know, okay, when this person's making this call, where are they? Um, when this person is uh, making this communication, where are they? And if you're dealing with a phone company, Verizon, AT&T, and so on, um, they're often going to be collecting that simultaneous with the phone number and the title and, and the duration of the call and so on. But as I mentioned last time in the podcast, the courts have stepped in and said location information for phones, at least when it's collected for a period of more than seven days, and your pen register trap trace can be more than seven days. Uh, that is information that is so private that they are going to require you to get a search warrant. And so that creates a challenge for you immediately, right? And it, and it should create a challenge in your mind if you listen to the first half of this podcast, right? Which is, well, now, hang on a second. We just got done listening to this idiotic story that Big E was telling me about how you can't get a search warrant for this information because it is prospective information. But now the court is saying that I do need to get a search warrant for this information. Uh, and so what the heck, right? Well, this is where we get into the issue of location data. 
Now, there's a case called Carpenter versus the United States, and this is a U.S. Supreme Court case that was decided in June of 2018, and that held the government must generally obtain a warrant supported by probable cause before acquiring historical cell phone records that uh, provide a comprehensive information, comprehensive reflection of um, somebody's movements. And Carpenter talks about historical location data. Carpenter doesn't talk about current location data. It doesn't talk about future location data. It doesn't talk about tower dumps, if you know what a tower dump is. And maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. Uh, but for now, I'm going to hold off on that because um, we're still talking about basic concepts here. Um, they just talk about historical location data. And again, they talk about historical location data for periods of time uh, for greater than um, seven days. So what about real-time location data, right? Well, if we want real-time location data, the Virginia General Assembly has already decided years ago that they want you to get a search warrant for, to, in order to obtain real-time location data uh, in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So again, that's kind of weird because, again, as I told you, how do you get a search warrant for something that doesn't exist? Well, because the General Assembly passed this code section, the magistrates invented a form. They invented a form that is they call the Affidavit for Search Warrant for Real-Time Location Data. And it's a Supreme Court form. It's a DC 308 form. And, you, uh, and it's written in such a way that you can take that form and get an affidavit and get a search warrant for uh, real-time location data. So again, going back to the situation that I'm describing, let's say I've got an individual who, we'll take the individual that we talked about before, the individual who murdered a police officer, who, uh, who has been, these people have been going around and shooting people and robbing people. They don't have a place that they live. We need to find them and stop them from shooting people and robbing people. So I'm going to get a pen registered trap and trace because the, and again, I, I can't use a search warrant for the trap and trace information because the search warrant doesn't get me that information. I have to use the federal code section. I have to use the Virginia code section to get that order, to have that authority, that legal authority to order the company to collect this information and turn it over to me. What numbers are the person dialing? What numbers uh, are dialing this person? What is the identity of the people who this person is communicating on Facebook Messenger? Uh, this person, who are the people who are contacting this person on Facebook Messenger? And then probably also I would like to eventually find them, right? So I probably want my location data too. But because I want those two types of information and they're treated differently in the law, we need an order from a circuit court judge for a pen register trap and trace. But then also because Virginia law tells us that we need an a search warrant, we need to have a search warrant for their location data. And you can't just get one search warrant to get everything because the law doesn't let you do a search warrant. It requires you to do an order. But you can't just do an order because the law requires you to do a search warrant too. So you got to get an order and you got to get a search warrant. And that's, you know, you listening to something for 25 minutes, I probably could have told you in the first 30 seconds. But I wanted to make sure that we got here in a way that hopefully you get why it's a messed up system. Uh, and, you know, I've worked with the U.S. Marshals before, and they've come in and they've said, you know, wow, this is a pretty messed up system you have here. Uh, and in fact, I've talked to, you know, lawyers from Google before, and they've looked at the code section, and they're like, wow, your code section is really messed up. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, 
that's the those are two opinions that are based upon looking at what other code sections in other states say and what our code sections in Virginia say. Um, but you know, be careful what you wish for. If like people come in and try to fix it, they may just make it worse. So this is what we got. And in order to make it work, if you have somebody that you're looking at for the next 60 days or the next 30 days or whatever, and you want to figure out who are they contacting, who's contacting them, and then also uh, figure out their location information, you need to be able to put together both a, a court order for trap and trace and also a search for, for real-time location data. A best practice, a thing that I think is most efficient then would be to have both of those things in hand and go to see one circuit court judge. Because remember, your circuit court judge can sign search warrants. Some of you come from jurisdictions where your circuit court judges don't like signing search warrants because they feel like that's the magistrate's job. And if they start doing the magistrate's job for this, they'll start doing the magistrate's job for everything. So they don't want to get into that realm. They say, I want you to take search warrants to magistrates. But if you can make clear, like, look, this is the same affidavit for the same phone number for the same service requiring the same basic idea of information. The substance of it is the same. All you have to do is read one affidavit to explain why I'm doing this. It's all one um, set of needs. It's just that the law requires two signatures on one on two different forms of legal process, one in order and one in a search warrant. Uh, then you might be able to prevail upon a circuit court judge in your jurisdiction to at least understand this is the most efficient way to do this. Um, so you'll you know work with your prosecutor's office on trying to put together that package, that information. They do have access to that. Um, I've created inf- uh, that kind of form before and, um, and and shared it with different prosecutors. So if they're amenable to that and if your prosecutor's office is willing to do it and help you through that process, uh, that can be the best way to do that, the most most efficient way to do that. Um, and then we're going to talk about non-disclosure orders too in a little in a, in, a, in a few probably in, in the future. Um, and you know you can probably do your non-disclosure order with this. One advantage is I talk about non-disclosure, and we'll, we'll cover this again in a future episode. The pen register trap and trace section comes with a requirement of non-disclosure, and that kind of makes sense if you think about it, right? When they wrote this code section back in the mid '80s, even then they recognized that it makes no sense to install a pen register trap and trace on somebody and then immediately notify them just to let you know any phone number that you dial from this number is going to be recorded and turned over to the police. Any phone number that dials you to this number from outside is going to be recorded and turned over to the police just to let you know. So do whatever you want for the next two, the next month or two. Well, of course, obviously nobody's going to use that number, right? You're, you're, and you just might as well just not do the trap, trap and trace at all. Um, and so the code was written to say that a pen register trap and trace order shall include an order not to disclose for the duration of the order. So as long as you've got that trap, trap and trace in place, then you get that non-disclosure language. And that's true in Virginia law as well. Uh, non-disclosure language uh, is automatically as part of the statute. So uh, that's a long discussion of pen register trap and trace, but I think it's important that we understand what the terms of it are and how it works, and all that kind of good stuff. Um, so that's a podcast for today. I uh, hope you've been checking it out. Um, we are, of course, on SoundCloud. We're also on Apple Podcasts. And thank you guys for the reviews. I want to. I'm going to think. Start reading some of these reviews on on uh, on the air because they're really nice. People have said some really nice things. Uh, we've gotten some nice comments on SoundCloud. I'll share those as well. We're also available on Stitcher Podcasts. So if you got an Android phone, a Google phone, uh, and you want to use an app to listen. Stitcher Podcast is a great app. 
if you've got an app that you like using and you know you're like hey it's not fair that you know i don't like that you're not on this app or that app reach out to me let me know and say hey look can you get on this app uh, and i'm happy to see if i can do that for you to make it easier for you but uh that's all from me that's all i got for you today it's all from Big E. if you like the podcast tell your friends if you don't like the podcast don't tell your friends stay safe and don't get captured